We'll be looking at James chapter 1 in just a bit. As you were walking in, I was saying we have four adult classes going on right now. The young adult singles class, Crossroads. The young married class, 20 to 30-year-old. And then over 30, Home Builders class. All of those are meeting right now. So our class here is smaller than normal. While those classes are going on, they'll end on August the 30th, just a few weeks, and then we'll all be back in together. So let me tell you about our schedule coming up before we dive into where we left off in our study of James. Here's some announcements for things that are coming up. One is the vow renewal ceremony. That's August the 22nd, Saturday, 4 o'clock. If you want to participate in that, we've got to know that today. We've got a number of couples who are participating in the vow renewal ceremony. The folks that are organizing it have already done a great job. It's going to be a a really terrific event and memorable. So if you have any interest in that, I can give you the details about it as I shake folks' hands on the way out today. Let me know that you would like information about that, but you need to do that today. That's on Saturday the 22nd. This coming Wednesday is our third and final Backyard Fellowship of the summer. We have one in June, one July, and one in August. This is the August one. I almost hate saying third and final Backyard Fellowship. It means the summer is quickly coming to a close all too soon. But it is this Wednesday, the 12th, 6.30. It's at the home of Peter and Wanda Stevenson on Grozeal, and we have maps to their place on the information table right over here. So pick one of those up, and in your program, we have a paragraph about the Backyard Fellowship that tells you what we ask you to bring and what the church will be supplying for that. We always have a great time for them. Everybody's invited and encouraged to come this coming Wednesday. And then for this hour, uh, here's the schedule coming up. We will meet together and go through as far as we can the book of James through the end of this month. The last Sunday is the 30th. So we will finish uh, this series on the 30th, and the marriage classes will finish that day as well. And then on September 6, 13, and 20, those first three weeks in September, uh, I am going to be leading our newcomers orientation class. We do that periodically throughout the years. We do a three-week class for those who are new to our church to tell you about who we are, give you an idea of where we came from, what we believe, what we hope to do in the future, and it's simply for information purposes. It doesn't obligate you to join the church or sign up for anything. It's simply to aid you in making a decision about where the Lord would have you to serve. And so that will be offered. I'll be teaching it the first three Sundays of September, 6, 13, and 20. One of our other guys will be leading then this class for those three weeks while I'm teaching the, the newcomer's orientation class. So if you're interested in that class, let me know because I have a booklet of material that I prepare. need to know about how many of those two are put together. So just let me know that you'd like to participate. We'd love to have you. Related to newcomers, on the 29th of this month, the last Saturday of this month, we have our periodic newcomers brunch, we call it. It's brunch at our house. So if you're new to our church, we have a few things coming up for you in the next few weeks. There's the orientation for those three Sundays during this hour, the 6th, the 13th, and the 20th. But on the last Saturday of this month, it's our our newcomers brunch. It's at our house at 10 a.m., goes to about noon, and we just need to know how much stuff to make for the brunch, so that means we need an approximate number of how many people are coming. So let me know that in the next uh, week or so so we can uh, put you on the list or let my wife know, and we would love to have you come over our house. There's no agenda for that brunch. Uh, I don't teach anything. It's just us getting to know you. It does offer you an opportunity to ask any questions you might have about our church, get to know us in that setting, 
If you don't have any questions, then just enjoy the fellowship and the food, all right? So that's what's coming up over the next few weeks. We've been looking over the last couple of weeks while the marriage classes are going on at a a review of the book of James. We're not able to do that last week because I was on vacation, but we've had two sessions thus far looking in to the content of the book of James. And let me, as quickly as I can, remind you as to what the book of James is about. I call this series The Behavior of Belief. And the reason is, is because James is convinced, and the Bible teaches throughout, that those who believe, those who have faith in Christ, are impacted in such a way that it affects the way they behave, the way they live, what they do. And so it is not faith, belief, is not simply a matter of, I believe in Jesus. And that's why I'm sometimes hesitant to say, is so-and-so a believer? Now, that's a perfectly good New Testament term to describe someone who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, in our day, when you say, is someone a believer, for many people, all that means is, I believe there was a guy named Jesus who, who was crucified. And the Bible teaches that if you truly appropriate that truth about Jesus, who he is and what he did, it will have impact on the way you live. So when you simply say, is someone a believer, it can be misunderstood. So I like to say, is so-and-so a follower of Jesus? Is someone committed to Christ? I can't tell you how many times young women, not only in our church, but in our parent church from which we came, and I've observed this in the Christian landscape over many years, young women who are looking for a guy and they grew up in a Christian home, and they know that they should date and marry a Christian guy, find some guy somewhere, and then they tell me or they tell their parents or both, he believes. He's a believer. And they want to convince themselves that we can check that off the list. He meets the criteria. But, of course, my response is, is he a committed follower of Jesus? Because you can say you believe all day, but what you really believe, what I really believe, what we really place our faith in will be demonstrated by what we do. And that's what James teaches. James teaches, as the Bible does throughout, that indeed we are justified before God by faith alone, believing alone in what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, but not by a faith, as I said a few weeks ago, that remains alone. We are saved by faith alone, but that faith then is accompanied by, evidenced by, shows fruit in what we do. And the book of James then is about that fruit. And the heart of the book is in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, where he says, if a man has, says he has faith, but does not demonstrate it by deeds, can such, can that kind of faith save him? James is not questioning whether or not we're saved by faith alone. He believes that. The Bible teaches that. But he's questioning the kind of faith that this person has. If it's not a faith that demonstrates itself in what they do, then it's a false faith, James would say. It is simply someone who is a professor and not a possessor. You know it's possible to profess Christ, but not actually possess Christ. And what's the difference? The person who believes rightly, but the person who also behaves rightly. Evidencing that belief 
by the way they live. And so the heart is in chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, where James gives this famous illustration of the person who sees his brother destitute of food in need of help, but he says, be warmed and filled, I'll pray for you, but does nothing to meet his his needs. What good is that, James asks. In the same way, faith, if not accompanied, James says, verse 17 of chapter 2, faith, if not accompanied by works, is dead. So the Bible teaches throughout, and James really hones in on the necessity of the behavior of belief. I remind you that the words in the New Testament that are translated faith and belief are the exact same Greek word. Pistis is the Greek word. It's sometimes translated believe, sometimes faith. And so when James says, if a man says he has faith, it's the same as saying if a man says he believes, if a man says he's a believer then that should be demonstrated, evidenced by what he or she does. And thus the title of the series, The Behavior of Belief. And James gives nine tests of the genuineness, the authenticity, the reality of what we claim to believe. And I encourage you, if you haven't been here for the previous sessions, you can go on our website. We began this on July the 19th, and then we had a session on the 26th. I wasn't here last week. Today's our third session. But you can listen to the sessions from the 19th and the 26th. And I listed what those nine tests are. We saw the first of those nine at the beginning of chapter 1, though. And in verse 2, James says, Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. And so the first test of genuine faith is our reaction to the trials that inevitably come our way. And I told you that from chapter 1 and verse 2, these trials that come our way have four characteristics. They're unavoidable, they're unplanned, they're unwanted, and they're unlimited. All of that packed into chapter 1 and verse 2. Now, how can you count it all joy? Verse 2 of chapter 1, verse 3 says, because you know. Here's how I can consider it joy. Not that it's joyful, not that it's pleasant, Trials are generally not like that. But here's how I can consider it pure joy. Because of what I know, and what do I know, verse 3, you know that the testing of what you believe, the testing of your faith, produces patience. And patience, when it is finished, produces what God desires in your life and my life, mature Christian character. And then we saw on the 26th, two weeks ago, that God desires to produce this maturity But in order for that maturity to be produced in these trials that inevitably come our way, we are going to have to have what the Bible calls wisdom. And that's why verse 5 of James chapter 1 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And God will grant that request. And when we ask for wisdom, here's what we're saying. We're saying, Lord, help me in this particular circumstance to see what it is you are seeking to accomplish in my life, to skillfully appropriate the knowledge that I have from your word to the circumstance at hand. Wisdom. And then beginning in verse 9, James gives a couple of circumstances that God can place you in where wisdom is required. Material poverty, the poor man, verse 9. And then he talks about the man who is rich, the man who is blessed materially. 
And we're all then in these trials being put to a test, a test of what we believe, the genuineness, the authenticity of our faith in these, in these trials. And sometimes we fail those particular tests, do we not? I do, you do. And sometimes instead of the trial becoming an opportunity for us to grow in Christian maturity, which is what God designs, it becomes a temptation that results in sin for us. And that's why verse 13 of chapter 1 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. And I've pointed out for you that in verse 13, the word tempted is the same Greek word in verse 2 that's translated trial. Same word. Now, why is it translated trial in verse 2 and temptation in verse 13? Here's why. It's not because the circumstance is different. It's the exact same circumstance that a good God allows you and me to be placed in for his good design that he produced mature Christian character in us. That's what verses 2 through 12 teach. But depending on our reaction to that particular circumstance, it can become a temptation that leads us to sin. And so James says, when you're tempted in that circumstance, and you are drawn away of your own desire and enticed, such that you sin in that circumstance, don't blame God, that was never God's design. And so God allows these trials, these circumstances, to come into our lives for ultimately good ends, to produce mature Christian character. But in that very same circumstance, we can be tempted to sin in our reaction to it. And that's not God's problem, that's our problem. The same circumstance can be for one person a trial that produces maturity, and for another person a temptation that leads to sin. Exact same circumstance. And what's the difference? It's the heart that you bring to the situation. And that's a test of our hearts then. A test of what we really believe. So the first test of genuine, authentic, real Christian faith is our reaction to trials. The second test begins in verse 19 of James chapter 1. And it's our reaction to the Word of God. Verse 19, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Now, at the end of the section that concludes in verse 18, talking about trials, where James has made the point that God allows these difficult circumstances to come into our lives, but for good ends, namely to produce mature Christian character. And if we sin in the circumstance, don't blame God, because that emanates from our own evil desire. He concludes it in verses 17 and 18 by saying every good and perfect gift comes from God. So he's solidifying the point that it was not God's design in this trial for something bad to be the outcome. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. And one of those good and perfect gifts is listed in verse 18. 
He chose to give us birth. How? Through the word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. So God has a good end in mind in your trial. And what's the proof that God has good ends in mind? God's always like this. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. That's the way he is. That's the kind of God he is. And further, verse 18, you know this in your own experience if you know Jesus Christ because he chose you to give you spiritual birth. That's a good gift, isn't it? And so how can we then say, God has put me in this stupid circumstance. God, why are you allowing this to happen? God has good ends always, always for his children. He chose to give us birth. But how did he choose to give us birth? The end of verse 18. Or the middle of verse 18, through the word of truth. And now verses 19 and following connect that good gift of the word of truth, scripture. This good thing that God has done in our lives, if we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, has been affected in us by the Bible, the gospel, the word of truth. If that's true of you and it's true of me, then it should have an ongoing effect in our lives. That's what verses 19 and following are about. And that's why at the end of verse 21 it says, Humbly accept the word planted in you. When was the word planted in you? Back in verse 18. When he chose to give you spiritual birth. So this is written now to someone who presumably is born again, has been given spiritual life by God when they heard the word of truth proclaimed, the spirit moved upon their heart, and he gave you spiritual birth through the word implanted in you. Now what should our reaction be? That word should play an ongoing central role in our lives from the moment that we're born again until the time we die or Jesus returns. And that's the point now of verses 19 and following. And so, verse 19 says again, everyone should be quick to listen. To listen to what? To listen to the word. In context, it's the word in verse 18. It's the word in verse 21. And in between now, James says, because you have been given spiritual life through the word of truth, and because it's God's design for you to humbly accept this word that's been implanted in you, verse 21, you should be, verse 19, every one of us, he says, quick to listen. What's that mean? The phrase quick to listen means... Someone who, the word quick means ready, eager. Someone who is ready and eager to be attentive to what God has to say. Now in their day, they did not sit with Bibles in their laps like all of you guys have. Did you know nobody had a completed Bible at the time this was written? As a matter of fact, this would ultimately become what we just read, part of that completed Bible. 
So when it says listen, it was literally they had to be hearers. And James is going to say, beginning in verse 22, so be not just hearers, but be doers of the word. So people would be sitting there and they would be listening to the word of God as it was given by teachers that God had placed in the church. So they didn't have the written word like you have. They had the spoken word. And it was very important that they come then to those teaching sessions eager, ready, quick to listen to the word of God. Now you're in a different setting. You have the printed page. And so the application for us would be every time the bread of life is broken from the word of God, whether in a setting like this or in your own study, every time you come to the scriptures, the word of God, you come eager, ready to learn, humbly receiving what God has to say. Now, how can you do that in your life? You have times that God affords you to be taught the Word of God. Here's one of them. And if you're going to be eager, if you're going to be ready, if you're going to be quick to listen to what God has to say, there are some things that we all ought to start doing. Get some sleep on Saturday night. I mean, okay, let's be honest. If you've been up to one... You know, watching Saturday Night Live. Two, you come in half out of it. You were lucky to get the kids dressed and drug in here. They didn't get any breakfast. Thank God for Cafe Community. And so you come in here and you are barely coherent. You're barely able to process what, you, what you're going to hear. It's not a condition that lends itself to one being quick, ready, eager to listen, is it? And so just simple stuff like saying, it's important enough when the Word of God is open that I be ready, eager, able, desirous to listen to what God has to say, that I prepare myself for that. When I come to the Word of God in my own study, our own personal study, the very first thing you should do is say, speak, O Lord. Before I read it, before I study it, I pray, Lord, speak to me through your word. Open my heart that I will be an obedient servant of yours to what you have to tell me in your word. Quick to listen. Quick to hear the word of God. But notice the next thing then in response to the word of God that a genuine believer is to do. Quick to listen and slow to speak. Now, in their particular setting, as I said, you would have, you didn't have Bibles, you would have people listening, so they had to to listen carefully to what was being said, presented to them as the Word of God. And then there were often opportunities in those settings for people to say stuff. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in fact, if you get a chance to read that, Paul has to tell the Corinthians, you know, only one person should, should speak at a time when the assembly comes together. Because sometimes so-and-so would belt out, you know, this is what I think that means. And then somebody else would say, you know, this is what I think that means. And we'd all kind of pool our ignorance. And sometimes there there would be dissension, controversy that would develop. So much so that the next 
characteristic that James gives is slow to anger. An anger that can develop when people disagree about a particular matter. And so he says, quick to listen, slow to speak. In that context, it would be slow to speak in giving your two cents about the truth that's being presented. Meditate upon what you're hearing. Think about what you're hearing before you speak. Be slow to speak about it. Now, let's make some application of that, and we'll move on to the slow to anger piece of it. You would all agree that we need to be ready, quick, desirous, eager hearers of the Word of God, right? Everybody good with that? And if we're not, then let's not leave this hour without committing to the Lord to be such. Beginning next, this week in your own study and next Sunday when you come to church. Eager, desirous, ready to hear the Word of God. What's some of the application of that? I come to the Word of God with that sort of humble preparation that says, Lord, speak to me. Speak, O Lord, as we sing virtually every week during our worship hour. But then slow to speak. Compared to the Word of God contained in Holy Scripture, hear this, friends, my opinion and your opinion mean nothing. And we should be slow to speak, to give our opinion about anything unless and until we have compared that opinion with what? Scripture. Slow to speak. And yet, it amazes me how many of us, myself included, are willing to spout off our two cents and not be able to cite the principles or precepts from God's Word that undergird that particular opinion. Quick to hear, quick to listen, slow to speak. You say, but you know, a lot of the stuff I talk about, the Bible doesn't cover. Hmm. Let me ask you, is there anything that the Bible does not cover? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for how many good works? Every good work. The Word of God is comprehensive in its subject matter. Either in direct precept or indirect principle, the Word of God teaches on everything. First Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us that in the precious promises that God has given us in his word, we have all that we need, quote, for life and godliness. And so we should be quick to listen and slow to spout off our opinion about anything until we have assimilated what God has to say about that topic. That means that you've got to lose, and I've got to lose, the common thing that we do that just, where we just spout off our view and say, well, I just feel this way. How many times do we do that? Well, I just feel that. I just think that. Listen, what you feel and what you think is every bit as legitimate as what I feel and what I think. They're both useless. When compared... To the Word of God. 
So lose the I feel, I think, and begin to start saying, this is what God says in his word. This is what God has taught me in his word about work, about my spouse, about children, about the priority scheme for my time, the mission to which God has called me. I mean, the Bible just speaks to every issue under the sun. This is what God has to say about it. Quick to listen, slow to speak, and then slow to become angry. The truth is, when people disagree with us, it's easy for us, and I can say this from personal testimony, for too many years, and I still struggle with it, if you disagree with me, then I'm going to have the temptation to be angry at you. Why? Because I'm a big, fat piece of sin, right? Sack of sin, I called it last summer. Big, fat sack of sin. I know it's wrong, but I still struggle with it. I preach and teach this stuff. I really believe it most of the time. Until I'm in a situation and, and you disagree. And then I can feel it. And the Holy Spirit has to restrain me in the sanctification process to speak words of grace. So I've been there. I've done that. I know what that means. When we disagree, it's very easy for us to speak then, instead of words of grace, Ephesians 4.29, to speak words in anger to one another. But the person who consistently practices the first two will begin to get victory over the third. And I can tell you that, as I say, in personal experience. Eager to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Now, why slow to anger? Verse 20. Because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. It's counterproductive, is what James is saying. If your desire is for you to continue to grow in righteousness before God, and it should be, and if your desire is to see your brothers and sisters grow in righteousness before God, then James is saying anger is not the ticket to get to that destination. Man's anger does not produce what supposedly you desire for yourself and desire for the people with whom you have relationship. It's counterproductive. So what's the antidote to that? The first two in verse 19, being eager to listen and slow to speak. And so what do we do? Verse 21. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Get rid of all moral filth. And there James is using an image of clothing, outer clothing. Get rid of, in effect he's saying, the dirty clothing that you bring into the Christian walk, that every one of us brings into the Christian walk. And so there are these external, dirty garments, metaphorically, that we all have when we come into our walk with Christ. And we need to get rid of those. How? The end of verse 21, by humbly accepting the word that's been planted in you. And so the word is to have this transformative effect upon 
our external presentation. We're going to put off the external clothing, and not just physical clothing, but the, our, our outward appearance, our demeanor, our speech, and it may be even our clothing. That God is teaching me through His Word that I need to even dress differently. But all aspects of my behavior that I brought into this walk with Christ that James calls the moral dirt that is the attire that I came into this relationship with, those are to be put off. But then notice he adds this in verse 21. Get rid of the moral filth and the evil. Well, what's the difference? The moral filth and the evil, and then he describes the evil. The evil that is so prevalent. I think the King James says, does anybody have a King James? And does it say superfluity of naughtiness? I think in verse 21. Superfluity of naughtiness. When I was in New Brunswick last weekend, I spoke six times in four days. The church and the camp at which I was speaking uses the King James Version. I can't tell you how difficult it was for me <laughs> to preach sermons that I have preached before, but do it from the King James Version. Stumbling over my words, all kinds of stuff. And anyway, superfluity of naughtiness. And the idea there is this, that evil is pervasive. And that's why the NIV says... The moral filth, the, the metaphorical external clothing that we came into this relationship with, and the evil that is so prevalent. It's not just the obvious external stuff is what James is saying. The evil is so pernicious, so ubiquitous, so prevalent, that it gets down to our very attitudes and our very desires and our very thoughts. The evil that is so pervasive in us. And so if you and I think that we have come to a point in our Christian lives where we've learned to put off some obvious external baggage that we brought in, and that's all we need to do, then we need to think again. And that's what so many people do in the Christian walk. They make a lot of external changes at the beginning of their walk with Jesus. They start changing some of their scheduling stuff, and so they start coming to church. It's a good thing. Um, you know, they, if they used to swear a blue streak, you know, every other, every other sentence, now it's about, you know, every fifth sentence. And I keep getting better at it, you know. And so I'm making that sort of external change. It's a good thing. It's the moral filth. It's the kind of external clothing that we brought into the relationship. But it has been my observation that too many professing believers stop there. And you ask the individual, how long have you walked with Jesus? And they say 30 years. And here's what that means. They've got one year of growth 30 times. Not that I am 30 years now mature in Jesus. But rather I grew substantially for one year. And I've been coasting for 29 and James says, that's not what we do. 
The Word of God has a continuing transformative effect such that we put off the external clothing with which we come into the relationship and this prevalent evil that is with us all the time. To put it in Romans chapter 6 language, we are putting to death continually the sin nature. We're at war with the evil that is within us. And so in the words of Pogo, we have met the enemy, and he is us. And the enemy is within. The sin nature, the evil that's so prevalent. And what is the tool by which it happens? End of verse 21. The word of God, humbly accepting the word planted in you, which can save you. And so I'm quick to listen. Ready, eager. I humbly, and then it says accept. And the word accept is the same word that's translated elsewhere in your New Testament as welcome or receive. Humbly, welcome, receive the message of Scripture. It's used that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Same word. And it says there that the man without the Spirit does not accept, receive, welcome the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. But the assumption here is that you are the man or the woman with the Spirit. Back up in verse 18, you were given spiritual life, new birth. You have the Spirit. And now the Word of God, which accompanied that life that you were given, plays an ongoing role in your life, such that you humbly receive welcome the Word by which you were given this life. Humbly accept, welcome, receive the Word planted in you. Last phrase, which can save you. You say, well, I thought I already was saved when I came to Jesus. When I came to Jesus, that sealed the deal that I'm going to heaven, and that's true. If you've genuinely come to Jesus Christ, received Him as your Savior, bowed before Him as your Lord, you're a follower of Jesus, then you're saved forever in terms of your eternal destiny. But the word saved in verse 29 is not talking about the salvation uh, uh, of your eternal destiny. The word save in Scripture simply means rescue or deliverance. To be saved, to be delivered, to be rescued from someone or something. In the case of eternal salvation, eternal rescue, eternal deliverance, you are rescued, delivered from the wrath of God that abides upon all those who leave this world outside of Christ in the eternal penitentiary of the damned that the Bible calls hell. So you are saved, rescued from hell. But you are also saved, the Bible uses the word saved, rescued, delivered, to be saved, delivered, rescued from the consequences of sin in this life. And there are plenty of consequences of sin in this life, aren't there? And what James is saying is this, on a practical level, you do what I say, you be eager, ready to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, recognizing that the anger of man does not work the righteous life, produce the righteous life that God desires in you or in those in your sphere of influence. And as you not only get rid of the external garments with which you came into your relationship in walking with Christ, but also are at war 
with the evil that's so prevalent, putting to death the sin nature day by day, moment by moment, you will be delivered, you will be rescued, you will be saved from many ill consequences that come with pursuing sin. And what's central in all of that? It is the Word of God. And so verse 22 tells us, Do not merely listen to the Word. And so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone, verse 23, who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like this. A man who looks at his face in a mirror, after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So here's the, here's the image that James is painting. If you come to the Word of God, whether in your own personal study or in a setting like this, and you open the Word of God, likened unto a mirror, and you see what it says about yourself there, you see the changes that need to be made, just like in the morning you get up, you look and you say, whoa, rough night. And there are changes that need to be made before I trot off to church. Thank you all for making those changes. And most of you would not think about going to work or going to church or anywhere without making the changes necessitated by a look into the mirror. But we do it with the mirror of the Word of God all the time. And James is saying, how foolish would that be to do it in the physical realm, but we do it in the spiritual realm all the time. We open the Word of Truth and we think it's optional for us to obey. I'm simply doing my duty. I go to church on Sundays. That's what we do. There's a guy that gets up and talks. We turn to a particular passage, but I really don't have to do what it says. And James says that's as foolish as looking in the mirror in the morning and staying that way when you go out. Conversely, though, verse 23, or excuse me, verse 25, the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So this man doesn't just take a casual glance. Notice he looks intently. And i got to quit now in the next two minutes with what verse 25 calls the Bible. He looks intently into the perfect law of liberty. You all see that phrase there? The perfect law of liberty. Perfect, it has everything that you need. One. And it's called the law that gives freedom, the law of liberty. And I just want to make this point to you, friends. That many times we take the truth, and it is a truth, that says, Jesus Christ has put an end to the law. And the Bible does teach that he has. That Christ is the end of the law for all who believe, the Bible says. Now, when the Bible talks about the end of the law, what's it talking about? So I'm about the first part of your Bible and the law that God gave through the lawgiver Moses, the Mosaic law. And it's done. It's over with. That's why you're not in a temple on a Saturday sacrificing sheep. It's over. That's done. That law is passed. In two weeks, we're going to start a series through the book of Hebrews during our 930 hour. And you'll see many allusions there to the things the first part of your Bible says that Jesus has fulfilled. The law is passed. But hear this carefully. Because the Mosaic law is now passed, 
It does not mean that God does not have rules and laws for you. There still is a law. But it's not the Mosaic law. It's the law of Christ. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2 refers to that very thing. The law of Christ. And I am under the law of Christ. You are under the law of Christ. It's what now the New Testament tells us. About what a follower of Christ looks like and what a follower of Christ does. And so the notion that's so prevalent out in evangelical circles, that if you have any rules for your life, if you have any standards for your life, you're somehow a legalist and you're somehow going back to the law of Moses. It's nonsense. The Bible itself is called the perfect law. But it's a law that gives freedom. You see, when used as intended, life can be very good. But if we don't play according to the rules, life has all sorts of heartaches in addition to those that come our way just living in a fallen world. We compound the difficulty by not moving the train of our walk with Christ along the prescribed tracks that He has given us in His Word. And when we get off track, it's not only not freedom, it's bondage. But you can be saved from that, you can be delivered from that, you can be rescued from that by appropriating the Word of God, the very Word of God that He used to give you life and your relationship with Christ. We're going to bow in just a moment. But I hope that out of our time together, you've been reminded of the importance of the Word of God in your walk with Jesus. And having been reminded that we need to be people who are eager, ready to listen to the Word of God every time it's opened, whether in our personal lives or when we come together in a setting like this, slow to form opinions unless and until they've been compared to the standard of the Word of God, that the Bible then teaches us what I'm supposed to look like when I look into the mirror. It has a transformative effect. I'm putting off these external garments and the pervasive evil that is with me all of the time. James summarizes it by saying, be a doer of the Word. Not simply a hearer of the word. I trust that you will commit as we pray in just a moment to do that very thing. And beginning tomorrow in your time in God's word. Lord, speak to me through your word. Change me through your word. And next week, you come here eager to listen. Quick to hear. Slow to speak. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time in your word looking at the words of your servant James with regard to the prominent role that Scripture is to play in the life of those who know Jesus. Lord, it's one of the tests of the genuineness of what we say we believe as to how we respond to the Word of God. And so, Lord, help us to be people of the book, not in in word only, but in deed as well. Help us to be people who not only say we are Bible believers and we stand on the authority of the Word of God, but help us to be people who practice that Monday through Saturday and on Sunday as well. Help us to be people who are eager, ready, desirous to listen to what you have to say and to put in practice what you tell us. Help us to begin to do that this very week, Lord, in our relationships, in our thought life, in the evil that is so prevalent in in the, the desires of our hearts, where we go and where we feast our eyes, 
Help us, Lord, this very week to begin to practice what we have learned from your word to your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.